You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer powered, listener supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Brandon Blewett. And I'm Benedict Jones. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, January 22nd, 2024. Later in the program, local journalist Dave Askins with the B-Square Bulletin explores the amount of transparency within the Bloomington City Council. More in today's feature report. Everything that we learn in history books, these people are living history books. They can share that with you. You get all those connections and you get to hear all those fantastic stories. That's Rhonda Green from Johnson Christian Village, a nonprofit serving local seniors. She's looking for volunteers to make meaningful connections with our community elders. Hear more later in the show on a new episode of Activate. But first, your daily headlines. The Bloomington City Council met on January 17th for its second regular session of the year. The council heard a second reading on a resolution to approve recommendations to the mayor for the distribution of community block grant funds for 2024. Deputy Clerk Jennifer Crossley read the synopsis for the resolution. The synopsis is as follows. The city of Bloomington is eligible for a community development block grant CDBG from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban of Urban Development estimated to be $855,868. This resolution outlines program recommendations by the mayor with input from the Citizens Advisory Committee and the Redevelopment Commission. Pursuant to federal regulations, CDBG allocations are made across the following general program areas, social service programs, physical improvements, and administrative services. Interim Director of Bloomington's Housing and Neighborhood Development, Anna Killian Hansen, walked through the grant allocation. Um, right now, the allocation um, that we're proposing is administration is receiving $171,174, social services $128,380, Physical improvements, 556,314 for a grand total of 855,868. For physical improvements, the organizations um, are Centerstone of Indiana, Life Designs, Monroe County United Ministries, New Hope for Families, Summit Hill Community Development Corp, also BHA. <clears throat> Killian Hansen also walked through the grant funds, which will be used for social services. Social services is Community Kitchen, New Leaf, New Life, Beacon, Middleway House, Hoosier Hills Food Bank, Mother Hubbard's Cupboard, Monroe County United Ministries. Newly elected council member Sidney Zulick, representing the city's 6th district, asked how estimations were calculated and if the numbers would change. Killian Hansen responded. So I saw in the packet that it was an estimation of the funds we would receive. How was that calculated and how could it potentially change? Um, question. So HUD determines the final numbers, and in our funding agreements, it's spelled out with each organization what happens if we get more or less. So we base our um, annual allocation based on the previous year. And I would note that the allocations have not changed significantly over the years. District 3 representative Hopi Stossberg 
asked about the history of how CDGB funds were typically allocated. I noticed in the packet that there were some organizations that did not uh, receive funding that they requested. Historically, do we usually have more applicants than we have money? And uh, is there a trend that uh, the same organizations tend to get uh, awards every year? Or do we end up, like, do people end up taking turns? Like, how does that usually happen? First of all, this is my first year, so please bear with me. I may not know that answer, but I'd be more than happy to get back to you with that. But from my understanding and looking at um, previous year's allocations and how the CIC has voted, um, typically there are more allocation, more applicants than um, are awarded, and they are scored. So um, the CIC has, and I know that we have a council member present that was actually on the CIC who may want to chime in on how that um, happened, but uh, they are scored and then given their allocations. Council member Kate Rosenberger chimed in to provide an account on how the request for funds have worked in the past. So I have been on the CDBG Physical Improvements Committee for four years, all of my first term, and Okay, Council Member Stossberg, to answer your questions, first, yes, every year, for the most part, there are more, there's, there are more applicants and funding requests than we have dollars. Some years are different. One year, it was relatively close. Uh, I think this past year was almost two to one requests. Um, we, we don't necessarily score them. There's no rubric, um, or like actual, like, process in in how we allocate funds, I would say. So um, it can be very hit or miss. One year we awarded solar panels to New Hope for Families. This past year they requested more and we did not do that. So um, this is not exactly what you asked, but I would just say yes to your question. And I think that moving forward, this is something I want to look into with the hand department that are there ways that we want to structure this for specific physical requests in a year? I'm on the physical side, of course. So, you know, do we want to look at greening our nonprofits or do we want to look at like office furniture or something specific that can help and be a little more um, intuitive for applicants to know what the committee is really looking for in a given year, if that makes sense. Council member Dave Rollo noted that CDBG funding has generally declined over the years. He expressed concern that more funding could be allocated to social services, such as the Jack Hopkins program, while devoting less money to the city. So my observation is that uh, as I've been on the council, what I've noticed is that the CDBG funding has declined year on year. Um, As a matter of fact, I looked at a historical view, and back in the 70s, um, the allocations, the, the total amount from the federal government was on the order of $16 billion. Today it's about $3.5 billion, and that's in inflation-adjusted dollars. So the total amount is decreasing, and as was noted, the number of applicants have increased as well. This year, the fiscal improvements requests were $1.1 million. We only funded half that, $556 thousand dollars. For social services, it was even worse. It was uh, the total request equaled $300,000, and the funding available was about $128,000. Of the 12 social service agencies that requested social service funding, only uh, five of those received no funding whatsoever. 
So looking further at the historical record of this, um, we received, give or take, we don't know exact numbers right now, but we received about $856,000. In 2014, we received $954,000. In 2004, we received $1.24 million. So the amount is decreasing every year. So we can anticipate that it's either going to flatline probably or it's going to continue decreasing. So what can we do about that? It seems like the logical step is to address this through the Jack Hopkins Social Service Fund. Unfortunately, that has more or less flatlined as well. In the past few years, uh, I know a number of colleagues in the council have requested that the, the past administration increase funding for Jack Hopkins. It, it was funded uh, increase, but meager incremental increases. So uh, last year we had $323,000 for Jack Hopkins, $319,000 in 2020, $270,000 in 2015. Um, so it's not keeping pace, certainly not keeping pace with inflation. Poverty is a real problem in this community. We have this, we, we must address the needs of low-income people in this community. Since 2005, I, I also note that because of inflation, we have about, uh, people have about one-third less purchasing power on the dollar because of inflation. So um, I would just say this to make a case that we ought to be increasing Jack Hopkins significantly in the future doubling or tripling that amount in order to make up uh, so that we could at least keep parity with where we used to be. And, um, and then, you know, perhaps, well, that would do a lot of good. And I respect all of these agencies that applied, some of which received nothing in their requests. So that's uh, um, my modest uh, request of the council administration that we really focus hard on Jack Hopkins and increase it in, next, in this coming year's budget. Thank you. Council member Matt Flaherty shared Rolo's concern about the decreasing funding, specifically around social services. To proactively address the issue, he proposed a cooperation between the Jack Hopkins and the CDBG social services committees in the future years. What I might suggest we consider though, uh, not this year, but perhaps in a future year, is the synergies between the Jack Hopkins Social Services Committee and the CDBG Social Services Committee. Um, I'm concerned a little bit about the administrative burden on uh, often uh, personnel-strapped nonprofits applying to multiple cycles for the same basic purpose uh, through different city funding mechanisms. Uh, I think both the Jack Hopkins Social Services Committee and the CDBG um, Citizens Advisory Committee for Social Services have done a lot of great work over the years, but perhaps we could actually seek to combine those and we could augment the CDBG dollars on the social services side, you know, to the tune of another uh, six or $800,000 um, to better meet the need, have one process for social service agencies. Uh, and if we feel like there needs to be uh, more formalized criteria that leverages the work that's gone into Jack Hopkins over the years and or even better or more council representation on that citizen advisor committee, I think we could do that and create that process. I think both of those are, are uh, you know, bodies of our own design. Councilmember Kate Rosenberger added that it is difficult for grant applicants to predict what the committees for the Jack Hopkins and CDBG grants will be considering each year. She suggested using software to facilitate this process. 
I think all of this is really taxing on those people applying. Most of our nonprofits here maybe have a development director, but full time, but maybe they do not because they're small and, and full time jobs um, cost a lot. So I would love for uh, this council potentially to start this year to work with the departments that are helping with these grants. I mean, Jack Hopkins is us, but CDBG is hand. Um, and look at granting software that um, is easier for the applicant and easier for the, the, the grantor to make it more predictable, to go through that process, to not only help with the granting process, but also to look at impact over time, because these are all stories of a lot of millions of dollars that we are granting, but we're not really showing the impact in our city and with our residents that these dollars fund. The city approved CDBG funds by a 9-0 vote. The city council will meet for its next regular session on January 24th. The Bloomington Utilities Service Board met on January 16, 2024. Lake Lemon Conservancy District Manager Adam Casey gave a presentation on their ongoing projects and the work they have been doing to reduce sediment buildup in a lake. I really just wanted to give an update on some of the things that have been going on um, recently. I think you'll be happy to see them and some of the progress that we have been making. First of all, this is an image of Lake Lemon on the eastern edge where Bean Blossom Creek comes in. Um, this is an image in the early spring. We have a lot of sediment that comes into Lake Lemon. That's our number one issue is the sediment management and then trying to retain water volume. So we started the Lake Lemon Sediment Management Project in the early 2000s and we're continuing on that. The purpose is really to manage the lake and enhance wetland functionality, enhance and maintain recreation. Uh, then increase the longevity of the lake. In those first couple slides, I'll just kind of go through a little bit of history and then where we are at. So history of sedimentation. This is an image from a 1974 report um, from Army Corps and uh, some other areas that just show the lake lemon split up when they're looking at the longevity of the lake. So back in this 1974 image, they estimated about 40,000 yards of sediment coming into Lake Lemon per year. And the east end, they had a nominal lifespan or usable lifespan of about 80 years. And I'm not sure if there is a laser on this, but those dashed marks on the right-hand side are what they call the east end past that. That is all gone now. The nominal lifespan um, has long passed, probably 15 years ago. Those Peninsulas on the north and south just have access channels now that are in those areas, um, so there really is no water capacity, and that's kind of the line in the sand that we're drawing for maintenance. We recently worked with Christopher Burke and a couple other engineering firms to look at actual sediment loading that's going on in Lake Lemon. With those initial um, estimates about 40,000, those are way off. What we've actually found between 2014 and 2019 there's about 136,000 yards of sediment coming in to the lake per year, which is a massive amount. And it's, it's, it's very hard to manage, but I think we are, are getting to that point. Casey shared their overarching goal is to maintain water quality and recreation potential and how they have been working to achieve it. Prior to my time, and I've been managing since 2015, I was lake biologist a couple of years prior to that. Um, our overarching goals, which is also our goals of the lease of the city, is maintaining water quality and recreation potential. 
We started an in-house operation in 2009. Between 2009 and 2020, we actually had an in-house barge operation. During that whole time span, we averaged about 10 to 11,000 cubic yards removed of sediment per year, um, which essentially just maintained these access channels along the eastern coves and where the homes are. And then we've also been uh, linear or stabilizing the shoreline, over 15,000 linear feet stabilized. So we've done this all in-house um, with some layer grant money from DNR, Lake and River Enhancement. Early on, the rest is through the taxpayers at Lake Lemon. So after we did our sediment transport studies, we realized we're not even keeping up or making an impact with this. You know, we're moving 10,000 yards a year. We're looking at 120 plus coming in per year. So what we actually did was work with Shrewsbury and Christopher Burke and came up with a management plan in 2019. All these different images are little aspects that we thought of. Um, the big zones in the open lake, one through five, were dredging zones just so we could segment and monitor what we were looking at. The other stuff in the east, we're looking at opening up old creek channels, kind of enhancing the flow of water through the wetlands to capture sediment, how we can best slow down the sediment, and then capture in those areas. What we ultimately found out um, from our sediment transport studies and with Christopher Burke is that we're really not gonna capture sediment any faster than that existing delta is doing. So we need to focus on the dredging. Kind of our most cost effective is to remove that sediment once it lands there. So in 2019, we purchased a 13 acre plot of land um, with the taxpayer dollars on the south shore of Lake Lemon to kind of start our sediment management project with the hydraulic dredging. We sold a $1. million bond and then as well when the markets were really low to fund this initial land purchase and then kick off this initial uh, hydraulic dredging project and the creation of our disposal basins. He said the biggest problem they have is deciding where to put the sediment after they dredge it out of the lake and the toxic algae blooms that grow in the lake. The biggest issue that we have out there is, besides money, is where do we put the sediment? And it's very tough. We're in ravines. There's not much farmland around there. So this is, again, back to our elements map. On the bottom, um, there's kind of a pond that's highlighted there. That is where we'll be starting our 2024 project. One of the reasons we loved this area is because the hazardous algal blooms, the blue-green algae, which is a very hot topic now, are just off the charts in this pond. There's like minimal connectivity. There's no wave action, no vegetation. So our plan is to fill this in during this 2024 project. And then per our permitting and per our plan, what we'll actually do is do a constructed emergent wetland. So we will plant that. So it'll actually be a treatment wetland. It'll still allow the flood buffering capacity but it'll be vegetated to take up the nutrients and actually clean the water coming through. So we're both accomplishing the dredging um, and then enhancing water quality with us. Board member Amanda Burnham asked if they have received any complaints from residents near one of the sediment dumping grounds. Casey responded. The, the first area that you were using for the sediment um, dumping, it looked to be that there were, weren't a lot of homeowners around it. It was very much land, kind of landlocked in there, correct? Correct, this, yeah. This second one, that this last one that you just showed before you came up, um, runs around, runs along North Shore, and there's a lot of housing there. So uh, it may be too, um, it may be premature to start that discussion, but 
Are there have there been any concerns from homeowners in that area? Um, so really, the it's been great feedback uh, about what we have been doing. It's very visual with the dredging that's going on. That actual area on the northern side does not have any direct homeowners along that side. On South Shore, there's not any development. Um, North Shore, sorry, until you go down the roads a little bit. And then on either side, east or west, it's forested right now. And then as you head north on that Possum Trot Road right there, there's a couple of cabins that are way back in there, but it's not in like a very populated um, district or there's no density of housing at all there. The next regularly scheduled utilities service board meeting will be held on January 29th. Next, local journalist Dave Askin with the B-Square Bulletin explores the amount of transparency within the Bloomington City Council. We turn to Askins for more. The B-Square Bulletin sends out an emailed morning bulletin every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can sign up for the morning bulletin by visiting bsquarebulletin.com and clicking on the tab labeled subscribe. Here's an item from a recent installment. Pushing answers to the public, not just to city council members. On Wednesday night, Bloomington City Council was asked to approve an annual resolution that allocates money from the Federal Community Development Block Grant Program, that's CDBG. About $860,000 was allocated across the categories of social services, physical improvements, and administrative costs. It was an easy 9-0 to zero vote in favor of the resolution. Before the vote, Anna Killian Hansen, who is Interim Director of the City's Housing and Neighborhood Development Department, fielded questions from City Council members. Because she is new to the role, Killian Hansen responded to some of the questions by saying straight up, I don't know. But she was quick to add that she would find out the answer and send council members an emailed response. When the questioning wrapped up, City Council President Isabel Piedmont-Smith confirmed with Killian Hansen that the council would receive emailed responses to the unanswered questions. Here's how that exchange unfolded. Ms. Killian Hansen, if you could email responses, copy all of you? Yeah, copy all of us, or just send it to the council office. Absolutely. Dozens of times in my four and a half years covering Bloomington City Council meetings, I have heard that kind of request made by city council members of city staff. Not once have I ever heard a city council member make a different kind of request to a city staffer. Can you please post the answers to the questions on the city's website where the public can see them and maybe send out a news release with a link to the posted document? I think it's a matter of good civic reflexes. Individual council members don't seem to have the instinct to push information to the public because they are focused on their own informational needs to the exclusion of the public's informational needs. Multiplied across nine people, I think that counts as a cultural defect of previous city councils. It's disappointing that Bloomington City Council members don't generally just see themselves as part of the public, who can access the information in the same way that members of the public do. By advocating for the public, they would be advocating for themselves. They typically choose instead to advocate just for their own access to information, 
it's a little discouraging to see the new edition of the city council, which was sworn into office two and a half weeks ago, drop the ball like this at the very first chance. The good news is civic reflexes can be learned. Let's say a city council member hears a colleague at a public meeting make a request that a city staff member send an email message to city council members. In the future, I hope that causes some other council member to blurt out this question. What is the plan for pushing this information to the public? Until next week, this has been Dave Askins with the B-Square Bulletin for WFHB. Johnson Christian Village is a faith-based non-for-profit serving local seniors. Rhonda Green works there, and she loves to see volunteers come in and spend quality time with the residents or take them out into the community to do a little volunteering of their own. Rhonda is our guest this week on a new episode of Activate, coming your way right now on the WFHB Local News. Welcome to Activate, featuring real people working for positive change in our community, encouraging you to get involved, live your passion, and make a difference. Hi, I'm Rhonda Green with Johnson Christian Village. Johnson Christian Village is a senior living community, and we provide services for those who are independent as well as those who are seeking assistance. We are located in a beautiful country setting. It's about three miles off of 37 in Bedford. Our programs range from uh, the very independent who they can add services on and have us do their laundry, and they can we can provide them meals if they want to come over. From that, all the way up to helping with their activities of daily living which would be their bathing, grooming, dressing, transferring, toileting. Um, basically, we take all the stress off of being a senior, and we provide all kinds of fun activities that goes along with that. We do crafts, we do exercising, we go on field trips, and we're always looking for volunteers to participate in those activities with our seniors. My position is a senior living advisor. I get to go out and meet all kinds of people to build partnerships for Johnson, but I also get to meet families who are seeking assistance with their loved ones or even the, the person themselves. I get to meet them. So I have a lot of contact with a lot of families. So it's really a great place to come to and it's a fun place to work, but it's also a fun place to volunteer and to live. It feels like home. It is not like an assisted living place. It looks like you're just walking in down your hall in your house. And then once I got in there and I started meeting the residents, everything that we learn in history books in school, these people are living history books. They can tell you exactly like things that you would have read about the Great Depression and that sort of thing. They can share that with you. And it's really, it's, it's quite something to hear, you know. And then even like some of their possessions, uh, we have one gentleman with uh, paintings on his wall. And I asked him about that. And these are paintings from Austria. You know, he was stationed over there in the military. So we have a lot of veterans in our building. You get all those connections and you get to hear all those fantastic stories. When a volunteer comes to they will fill out an application. They will meet with me and we'll go over all the legalities of what that's going to look like. Um, you can volunteer as often as you want, as many hours, doesn't matter the day. We will set up a schedule and then we will just go from that. Uh, we actually give a list of activities that we would like to see done, but 
you know, you can also come in with your own ideas and we will incorporate those in. Because a lot of times, like we do have seniors who like to do the crafts or they like to do the exercising. They like to maybe just watch movies and eat popcorn. Some of them prefer just one-on-one. -on -one, someone just sitting and listening to them or reading to them. Um, but we've also had musicians come in and play for us. We've had poetry readings and people enjoy that. So we have people who like to build jigsaw puzzles. So there's just a wide range of things that someone can come and do. I had a awesome volunteer that would come and help me with car shows, would also uh, help me with music, uh, was a, a live musician that would come and play with his band for a while. Um, and eventually he actually loved volunteering so much that he became an employee and he is employed with us today. So we're very blessed to have him and we love furry visitors. So if you have a pet, we would love to have your pet come visit. I have a dog uh, named Memphis and he comes and he will visit the residence and they just think he's the most wonderful dog in the world. So yeah, uh, pets are definitely, you know, welcome. If you don't feel like you have anything to kind of contribute, but if you have a pet, they will contribute for you. Uh, one way that you can reach us for volunteering is you can go through our Facebook page, Johnson Christian Village. You can look us up and you will actually see some of our activities that go on on a daily basis there. So that would be Johnson Christian Village on uh, the Facebook page, or you can call or text at 812-276-7546. That's 812-276-7546. And you'll reach me and, uh, you know, we'll get you signed up. Thank you for listening. I'm Rhonda Green with Johnson Christian Village. Care to understand, then make it matter. You've been listening to Activate, true stories from friends and neighbors who stand up for what they believe in. Activate is a partnership between WFHB and the City of Bloomington Volunteer Network, working together to build a strong, healthy, and engaged community with production support from students in the media school at Indiana University. You can learn more about volunteer opportunities in the WFHB listening area online at bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org. That's bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org.